the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this 7-11. Hurricane Irma ripped through Florida, leaving half the state without power, and they may be without power for weeks. The Eagle Creek Fire continues, and of course, today is the anniversary of 9-11-2001. Engineering today's program is Clark Hilton. James Blend is producing. Later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Benjamin Weicker. He's a historian and the author of The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. You might be surprised to learn that the uh, the other the two ends of the continuum of the uh, uh, Reformation, the Protestants and the Catholics, are closer theologically than Luther would uh, certainly have thought. Anyway, we'll get into all of that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. Well, as I mentioned, the big news story, of course, is Hurricane uh, Irma. We did learn that it uh, is about ele- about seven, rather, on the scale of the world's worst recorded hurricanes. Most. Um, it won't make a lot of difference or comfort those who are squarely in the uh, middle of the, the wake of uh, this hurricane. But uh, Dr. Philip Klotzbach has compiled rankings of both Hurricane Irma and Harvey when they made landfall. Uh, compared to the 1935 Labor Day storm, Irma is a distant seven, uh, seventh rather, tied with the 1928 Lake uh, Okeechobee storm. So the lineup is that 1935 event. Um, Hurricane Camille in 1969, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Hurricane Andrew in 1992, Indianola in 1886. In um, 1919, uh, there is the Florida Keys hurricane. In 1928, the Lake, o- uh, the Lake Okeechobee. And in 2017, coming in at seventh, along with Lake Okeechobee, is uh, Hurricane Irma. Now, Harvey is way down on 18th. It's tied with two other events, one in 1898 in Georgia and the 1954 Hazel uh, hurricane. So to put it into perspective, that's where uh, this hurricane that we were told was going to be astronomical and exceed any previous hurricane did fall down that um, that list. Well, Irma, of course, um, after the hurricane uh, ravaged a string of islands known as the Florida Keys, officials are now warning tourists and residents to pretty much stay away until further notice. They note that the Keys are not open for business. There are a lot of concerns, downed downed, um, uh, electricity uh, lines among them. Houses and mobile homes were uprooted. Other infrastructures were destroyed. Uh, Innumerable amount of boats in the Keys were also uh, suffered damage from Uh, Irma's powerful winds. In a tweet this morning, WFOR reporter said, it's hard to describe the lower Florida Keys, but it could be best described as a war zone for most of the Florida Keys. There is no fuel, electricity, running water, cell service. Uh, Monroe County official said in a news release, um, Hurricane Irma made the first landfall in Florida on Sunday morning in the Keys as a Category 4 storm. With winds of 130 miles per hour, George Ramos, who's a Summerland Key resident who decided to ride it out, 
uh, in his home told the Miami Herald that Irma's winds sounded like war. It sounded like explosions. I can't imagine writing it out in the Florida Keys. In a White House press briefing uh, this afternoon, Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bosert he said recovery in the Florida Keys is going to take a while. I would expect that the Keys are not fit for reentry for regular citizenry for weeks. And although residents in the Keys were warned of, uh, of Irma's forecast path through the islands, hundreds stayed behind. And now officials say that supplies are running low and anxiety is running high. They were warned that that would be the case. Monroe County Emergency Management Director Martin Centerfit, he told the Miami Herald that the destruction caused by Irma Uh, could be a potential humanitarian crisis, which is probably an overstatement given we live in the United States of America, but that is his perspective from the ground today. The help is on the way, CenterFit said Sunday during a conference call. We're going to get uh, more aid than we've ever seen in our lives. End quote. Well, nobody can enter the island via bridges in the Florida Keys until they are inspected by the Florida Department of Transportation. Uh, the, the department tweeted that U.S. Route 1, the only passage in or out of the Keys, is closed and that residents and visitors cannot return until assessments of roads and bridges are complete. In many cases, the roads are simply destroyed or uh, covered by fallen debris, trees and other things. So it's a it's a rough um, situation there. Monroe County officials said that four bridges, uh, bridge inspections, rather, teams were dispatched this morning, as well as five um, cut and toss crews in an effort to clear roadways and other uh, blocked areas. And again, the, the concern is the bridge itself, as well as the fallout from Hurricane uh, Irma. Centerfit said that among the service crews going to assist the Keys are disaster mortuary teams. Uh, crews plan to begin searching each home house by house in the Keys today to check for survivors. Uh, they told the Associated Press uh, that an airborne relief mission was planned to deliver emergency supplies to areas walloped by Irma, which is essentially all of the islands. Uh, one um, uh, U.S. Coast Guard crew member said on Monday uh, in a survey of the damage of the Keys that after the flyover, there is devastation. Uh, he later tweeted, uh, we'll get through this together, which is how um, we have approached these sort of disasters in the past. Apparently, the hardest hit area of the Keys, according to uh, observers, is between uh, the Kujo Key and Marathon, two islands in the Keys that are roughly a 40-minute drive apart. That's known as ground zero, if you will. That's the worst spot. Um, they're confident that they'll be able to handle the challenge. The Keys are very resilient in terms of the community, uh, saying that they will be fine. This is the cost of living in paradise. Well, meantime, the USS New York, built with steel from World Trade Center rubble, arrived off the Florida coast for Hurricane Irma uh, relief um, 16 years to the day after the 9-11 terrorist attack took place. So the recovery has begun. Miami's financial district, known as the Wall Street of the South, remained a ghost town today after Hurricane Irma brought floodwaters to the downtown banking hub. Images from the Brickell Avenue in Miami showed water flowing down the street uh, on Sunday as the storm slammed Florida with the high winds and severe storm surge. A uh, long list of banks, wealth managers, private equity firms and hedge firms uh, called Brickell in downtown Miami home, J.P. Uh, Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and others were closed while waiting for news on the extent of Irma's damage. And again, it may take 
uh, days, in some cases weeks. J.P. Morgan was in the process of assessing the post-storm situation earlier today. A spokesman says all of J.P. Morgan's buildings and branches in Florida were closed and will remain so. Wells Fargo, which uh, began closing most of its branches on Friday, said its Florida locations and Miami corporate office would remain closed at least through Tuesday. Assessments will be made regarding branch conditions, team member availability before any decisions will be made about reopening. And that's true for virtually all of the uh, uh, centers along that road. Well, the weekend, um, uh, uh, but pretty dangerous, uh, Irma pushed inland on Monday. It hammered Florida with winds and floodwaters. Uh, Irma was downgraded uh, this morning to a tropical storm, and though it continues to sustain nearly hurricane-force winds of up to 65 miles per hour, a far cry from the 185 before landfall, rough conditions persist over Florida as uh, Irma's Outer Band uh, passes into Georgia, where the storm center is expected to arrive uh, and probably has arrived uh, late this afternoon. It tore through South Florida Sunday, making landfall as a Category 4 hurricane after leaving a deadly path of destruction in the Caribbean last week, according to the National Hurricane Center. The storm has already knocked out power to 3.6 million customers across Florida, officials say. And that was on Sunday, and more than 100,000 were in the dark in Georgia as of Monday. At least 38 people have died after Irma ravaged the Caribbean this week, destroying buildings, uprooting trees on its catastrophic path toward uh, Florida. Nearly 7 million people in the southeast were warned to evacuate in one of the largest U.S. evacuations, or at least attempts, including 6.4 million in Florida alone. Officials estimate that about 25 percent of Key West's residents stayed through the storm despite evacuation orders, and more than 120 homes were being evacuated early Monday in Orange County, the region where the city of Orlando is located as floodwaters started to rise. When the um, tide comes in, the waters rise, and it will take some time for them to recede. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Coast Guard reopened the Columbia River to all traffic Sunday night as crews continue to battle the Eagle Creek Fire. With a threat to structures diminishing, the Oregon State Fire Marshal's Office is planning to release five task forces assigned to the wildfire on Monday. The Eagle Creek Fire has burned 34,500 acres. It's 7% contained. The Archer Mountain Fire, burning across the Columbia River in Washington, is at 253 acres and 30% contained there. Eastbound I-84 is going to remain closed for at least another week because of rocks, snags, and other debris on the road. The Oregon Department of Transportation announced on Sunday evening it's still working with fire officials to determine when the westbound lanes can reopen. On Sunday, they said it has uh, removed about 2,000 trees in uh, danger of falling onto the road, but still have about 1,500 trees left to remove. So they've got their work cut out for them. That work should be done early this week, they say. The historic Columbia River Highway is still closed and has no scheduled reopen. Uh, The Oregon Department of Transportation said rocks and trees are still falling into the highway, and it's not safe for travel. So they are still moving there. We realize the closure of I-84 and the nearby historic Columbia River Highway is affecting the livelihoods of many people who live in the area and travel through 
Kimberly Denwittle said she's an ODOT spokesperson. However, we're working hard with our partners to ensure that we can open this highway and ensure the safety of travelers. And that is, for everyone, the number one priority. On the Washington side of the gorge, trucks over 10,000 pounds are prohibited from driving between Washougal and Dallasport on uh, State Highway or State Route 14 due to the fire. On Friday, the restriction on larger vehicles will remain in place as long as I-84 is closed, so that, um, according to the transportation officials, light winds are expected to blow from the east, uh, pushing the Eagle Creek fire back on itself, fire officials say. The uh, sunnier conditions and the change in wind direction may result in a small increase in fire activity, but it won't be anything severe, they tell us. The change in wind direction has fire managers hopefully, uh, hoping rather, that they'll... uh, They'll be able to use aerial resources to get a clear look at the fire parameters. And that's been a challenge all along with so much smoke in the winds. They could not get a very clear picture. Uh, they're looking at the east and south side of the fire above the Bull Run watershed. About 100 acres have burned in Bull Run, but it looks um, looks to be a low-intensity burn, according to officials. I'm not sure what the difference is, but they certainly do. Crews are also working on securing the northwest perimeter. That's near Cascade Locks after a successful controlled burnout on Sunday. Two community meetings are going to be held today. The first will be at 6 p.m. at the Edgefield Amphitheater in Troutdale. The second will be at 7 p.m. at the Marine Park Pavilion in Cascade Locks. And that will help uh, to inform residents and others in the area of what's uh, happening and what they might expect in the long and short term. On Sunday, crews focused on the western and eastern edges of the fire building direct line of uh, uh, to south of Bridal Vale. Crews also worked on Enforcing existing cold fire lines, burning out small pockets of fuel along the interstate. They definitely have their work cut out for them. Uh, The most recent evacuation notices were issued on Friday in Hood River County. They remain unchanged as of today. Homes near uh, D were told to get ready for possible evacuation. That's a level one, while homes in northeast Cascade Locks were told to be ready to go at a moment's notice as well. Previous evacuation orders, which have forced hundreds from their homes, are still in place uh, keeping in mind that we have lots of our, our neighbors here in the uh, in the area who are not in their homes because of those evacuation orders as they're attempting to get that fire under control. On Saturday, Senator Wyden said that he helped secure funding for the Eagle Creek firefight in Washington, D.C., but he stressed that more money needs to go toward wildfire prevention as needed. It's clear the fire has hit our state like a wrecking ball. The fire is the top wildfire priority in the country, according to fire officials. One-third of all acres burned in the West are in Oregon, according to the senator. Uh, The Red Cross said on Friday that 100 70 of our neighbors uh, who evacuated their homes were staying in two temporary shelters, 24 people at Mount Hood Community College in Gresham, 146 at the Scamania County Fairgrounds in Stevenson, Washington, on the other side of the river. The Gresham shelter will close uh, tomorrow. Mount Hood Community College can no longer support the evacuees uh, with classes set to begin. The Red Cross said the shelter will be moved to Harvest Christian Church uh, on Southwest Halsey Street. In Troutdale, the blaze uh, suspected of being started on the second of this month by a 15 year old boy playing with fireworks has also forced the shutdown of more than 30 miles of I-84 through the scenic Columbia River Gorge between Troutdale and Hood River. Trucks heading westbound are being uh, detoured off of the highway at the Dalles. Uh, so it's been a it's been a devastating season for those who live and work in the area. Um, but they're working very hard to make it possible that we can at least at some point. 
uh, return to the area. Union Pacific trains, uh, they were allowed to move through the gorge, and the U.S. Coast Guard opened the Columbia River to commercial boats, and that's certainly a step forward. In Oregon, the uh, Eagle Creek Fire reached the outer boundaries, uh, as we mentioned, of the Bull uh, Bull Run watershed, uh, didn't approach the infrastructure, so there's no concern about uh, the drinking water at this point. Authorities are saying that trails in the Columbia River Gorge affected by the Eagle Creek Fire might be closed for months. Uh, fortunately, we're heading into the fall and winter season. Uh, and if months means, you know, six months, then by summertime, it's possible that they, or springtime, they could be reopened. Don Stender, who's a trail crew supervisor for the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area, says that the trails will likely be off limits until spring because of landslides, uh, the risk and fire damage. The wildfire damaged the popular Angels Rest Trail and burned a pedestrian bridge near uh, the Oneato Gorge. It's too early to fully assess the damage, she says, elsewhere, but many popular trails were in the middle of the blaze and are likely affected. Stender went on to say that trail crews will uh, will be contending with fallen trees, uh, burned snagged, snags, rather, uh, rock slides, and severe erosion. The fires burned, again, 34,500 acres. Eastbound lanes of Interstate 84 will remain closed uh, another week, and that uh, that will all continue. Now, today, of course, we solemnly mark the 16th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. I think for most of us, we can remember precisely where we were, what we were doing when we learned about what had happened. And we thought uh, initially that um, there had been an accident of some sort. A plane had flown into the World Trade Center, and we assumed that that was a singular event that represented a miscalculation on the part of uh, pilots, but then as we continued to watch the events unfold, we learned otherwise. September 11, 2001, was in fact a deliberate attack on our nation. 2,977 innocents, mostly American citizens, were murdered by Islamic fascists on that day. The president issued a proclamation designating September 11th of each year as Patriot Day, and so today we mark Patriot Day. Flags. Uh, are for the most part flown at half staff in memory of those who lost their lives and those who mourn their loss. And uh, we will remember them when we come back from the break in just uh, just a couple of moments. But today being 9-11, the 16th anniversary, and it's difficult to imagine that it's been that long uh, since uh, those events took place. Fred Lucas, writing for the Daily Signal, pointed out the United States and allies seem to lack a clear strategy for toppling the terrorist threat. Even 16 years hence, after the worst terrorist attack in American history. That's uh, uh, what experts are saying about our response. The blood and treasure that has been spent since that event 16 years ago has been enormous. But have we accomplished our goal? Also, when we return, we're going to talk about the golden age, in quotes, that preceded 9-11 and perhaps our forgetfulness that left us vulnerable. Kevin Williamson, writing for the National Review, points out that we were so impressed by our victory over the Soviet Union that we failed to appreciate that 19 Islamic fanatics with box cutters had a sense of history, too. Perhaps we lost Hours. The golden age lasted about 10 years, and we'll explain uh, when we return. Also later in this hour, we're going to talk about John Kelly, who fired back at a, a congressman who was quite critical of his, uh, his leadership. We'll talk about the Department of Justice and their observation with regard to the ongoing investigation into whether or not um, there was any collusion with the Russians in the 2016 election. That and much more right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Golden Age lasted about 10 years. In November of 1989, the gates of the Berlin Wall were open. Soon after, the people themselves took to, took to it with sledgehammers, and people who didn't know that uh, uh, they could cry from joy learned to. Kevin Williamson, writing for the National Review. The, the Wall Street was, uh, uh, the wall rather, was a product of that original Antifa, the self-proclaimed anti-fascists of the East German police state, who called it um, an anti-fascist rampart. They told the subjects of their totalitarian rule that the wall was built to protect socialism from evils within, without. But of course, it was designed to stem migration out of East Germany, where people with direct experience of life under socialism went to great lengths to remove themselves and their families from that worker's paradise. By 1991, the demolition of the wall was complete, and so was the demolition of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics which was dissolved in November of that year. On the radio, pop stars sang about strolling through Gorky Park and watching the world wake up from history. The capital H uh, was Im- implicit, detonating history uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the sense that uh, f- there was a force against um, this movement that was drawing to a close. The United States declared victory and then turned its attention to domestic matters. That happens in the wake of great every great conflict in which the United States is involved, the people grew weary. They grow weary, even in victory. And someone, usually presidential candidates or someone, comes along and demands, why are we spending all that money in Berlin, Baghdad, Kabul, Damascus, when we could be using it to fix potholes in Sheboygan? Barack Obama would later talk about nation building at home, but he hardly invented that sort of thing. In 1992, it was Bill Clinton making the case for investing the so-called peace dividend in a larger welfare state at home. President Clinton put his wife, a middle, a middling lawyer in charge of reforming the nation's health care system and the project failed, but not before establishing the Clintons as a kind of ersatz royal house cum crime syndicate, the penicillin resistant syphilis of American politics. As I call them uh, a line from uh, I would uh, thank Roger Stone to uh, stop plagiarizing, he goes on to say. It was a heck of a party. The economy had gone from stagflation and gas lines in the Carter years to booming in the Reagan era. And that continued through the Clinton presidency, turbocharged by the emergence of the Internet and the high tech economy associated with it. My last year in college, he writes, 1996, may have been the best year in American history to have been entering the workforce with a halfway respectable bachelor's degree and a little bit of technological know-how. But things were pretty good all over. My own personal Austin economic indicator, the help wanted sign at the Taco Bell across from the University of Texas campus was advertising $10 an hour plus $1,000 longevity bonus after 90 days. And they couldn't hire people. My experience at my college newspaper and knowledge of desk pub- desktop publishing software was enough to take me around the world as a newspaper editor, but I was something of a slacker. The real go-getters uh, weren't going to work for anybody but starting their own companies and doing their own thing. The startup ethic uh, wasn't limited to software bosses like Bill Gates and Mark Andreessen. Robert uh, Rodriguez didn't sit around waiting for Miramax to make a movie. He took $7,000 to Mexico and made El Mariachi himself. There was a sense, not that anybody could do anything, but that the possible had become much larger than it once was. The combination of technology, freedom, entrepreneurship, and ready investment capital amplified the individual and made him, uh, if not quite the equal of a Fortune 500 corporation, then at least a potential rival to it. 
All of this occurred to Osama bin Laden as well. And the golden age came to an end a little more than a decade after the fall of the Berlin Wall on September 11th, 2001. Those of us who knew the world before our refugees from the past residents of a different world from one, the one inhabited by those who have never known anything different. That may be a return to normal. The paranoid atmosphere of 2017 is really not so different from the one at the end of the Cold War, when we elementary school students were being taught to duck under our desk in the event of a thermonuclear warfare. Those desks must have been sturdier than they appeared. With the rock festivals and tie-dye and bad haircuts, people in the 1990s sometimes thought they were living in something like the 1960s. But the Clinton years were a lot more like Eisenhower years than LBJ-Nixon-Vietnam War era, a time of peace that wasn't quite secured and affluent that, in retrospect, smelled slightly of tulips. It was a great time and a missed opportunity. We might have done anything during the post-war boom, with the United States standing practically alone on the global stage as the unchallenged economic power and leader of the free world, whose only global rival was a grimy, backward, hungry gulag state whose only real influence in the world came from its apparent willingness to destroy that world out of ideological pick. What we did was build a bigger welfare state and hope that good times would last forever, while doing very little to ensure that they did. We repeated that mistake in the 1990s, so impressed by our victory over the red armies of the communist world that we failed to appreciate that 19 Islamic fanatics with box cutters had a sense of history, too, and a program for a future very different from the one we'd imagined for ourselves. Gargantuan explosion. Oh, my God, I don't believe it. The northeast corner has exploded in the most incredible explosion. Flames are flying out of the building. They're five, ten stories high now. Black billowing smoke. The building corner, the whole entire corner is gone. Both World Trade Center buildings in New York City right now, heaps of rubble. At 9 o'clock this morning, a plane crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. I heard the noise. I was in my office and I heard the guys screaming. So I ran out and and everybody was saying, oh my God, and they're in tears, they're crying. Everybody's upset. I was trying to make phone calls. I looked up and I heard an explosion. And then I saw everybody in the street react first. People crying, people on the ground, everybody lying down. And then I looked up and I saw the, and I saw this huge plume of smoke and the tower just crumbling and it, and it just turned into a huge plume of smoke. And next thing you know, there's smoke in one tower. Shortly after nine o'clock, a second plane crashed into the second tower. Oh my God! I heard a noise coming in incredibly low, and then um, I heard I was standing here looking out the window and I knew it was going to crash and something was going to hit the building. I dove away from the window because I thought the explosion was going to implode the windows and I'd be shattered with, with glass flying out. As soon as it hit, I came back and there was a ball of flame. I'm, I'm still shaking. I saw it hit the tower and flame everywhere. Then minutes later, President Bush in Sarasota, Florida, called those crashes an apparent terrorist attack and a national tragedy. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Then an aircraft crashes near the Pentagon just outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia about an hour after those attacks in New York. Looking out our 12th floor windows at 1600 Wilson Boulevard in uh, Roslyn, Virginia, and I watched this. It looked like a commuter plane, two engine come down from the south, real low, 
uh, proceed right on and crash right into the uh, Pentagon. Then shortly after 10 o'clock this morning, one World Trade Center tower in New York collapsed. Now, lots of smoke, and then the next thing I heard an explosion and the building on the top, the south building, just crumbled. Just after 10.30 this morning, the other World Trade Center tower Collapse. We were standing there looking up at flames coming out of the building and smoke billowing out of the building and, and police and FBI everywhere and suddenly we heard a rumble and the sky was full of smoke. Everybody read crowds of people running through, I mean, shouting out to each other not to fall into the subway entrances. So it's just truly amazing because yesterday afternoon we were sitting in the World Trade Plaza Center having lunch and so now those two buildings are completely destroyed. Mm. It's difficult to know what tomorrow might bring, and certainly that day was one that was a shock to everyone. It didn't seem possible that such an event could take place in the United States, and yet it did. And some of the events that have taken place since have been very sobering to us and perhaps humbling to us rightly. And I hope it brings our nation to its knees as we pray and recognize our utter dependence on God. Shortly after the events took place, the president then Uh, George Bush spoke to the nation. Uh, Today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. At that time, it wasn't clear what had happened at the Pentagon or in Flight 93, but we now know that that was all part of the events planned for September 11th, 2001. We remember those 2,977 innocents who lost their lives on that day. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, fired back at a prominent House Democrat who called him a disgrace to the uniform. Of course, he's not wearing one any longer, but that's beside the point. And the Gold Star father and retired Marine Corps General's first public response to the personal attack on his service. Well, Illinois Representative Louis Gutierrez uh, had leveled the criticism at Kelly over his support of the president's decision to end the controversial program that shielded young immigrants in the country, had, having been brought in by their parents from deportation. In an email he uh, on Sunday, he responded by saying Congress did nothing to help so-called dreamers when they had the chance. As far as the congressmen and other irresponsible members of Congress are concerned, they have the luxury of saying what they want as they uh, do nothing and have almost no responsibility. They can call people liars, but it, uh, it would be inappropriate for me to say the same thing back to them. 
As my blessed mother would say, empty barrels make the most noise. He concluded the congressman has a right to his opinion. Well, Kelly had advised the president to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program with a six-month wind-down. As announced last Tuesday, former President Barack Obama had created DACA via executive action, and both Democrats and Republicans have questioned the legality of the move, Uh, the president having said uh, several times that he did not have the authority to make such a move. Um, conservatives' uh, voices, rather, are uh, mostly unified in their view that the president exceeded his constitutional authority by circumventing Congress. And even Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein said on MSNBC that the policy was on shaky legal ground, urging Congress to pass a law, which they now have been given six months to do. But the vocal and increasingly powerful uh, uh, party uh, on the other side of the aisle has been leading activist uh, rallies across the country against the decision. In a statement last Tuesday, Guterres said, uh, Kelly has no honor and should be drummed out of the White House, along with White House um, super- white supremacists and those enabling the president's actions by just following orders. In announcing the uh, decision with the six-month delay, the president urged Congress to come up with a legislative solution, given that it's in their bailiwick and not the executive. Kelly indicated he's not going uh, not getting his uh, his hopes up. Every Department of Justice and Department of Hem- Homeland Security lawyer says DACA is unconstitutional, and it was a matter of time having uh, DAPA already uh, declared such that DACA would have been as well. Uh, every other legal scholar, right and left, says the same thing. Trump didn't end DACA. The law did. That said, I worked and succeeded to give the Congress another six months to do something. I am not confident he says, of that assignment. We'll see what actually happens. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has no plans to uh, charge former IRS official Lois Lerner over her role in the Tea Party targeting scandal. The Justice Department on Friday announced in response to calls by Republican lawmakers to revisit the case. In a letter to the lawmakers, the Justice Department said that reopening the criminal investigation would not be appropriate based on the available evidence. This past April, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady and Representative Peter Roskam, both Republicans, had asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions to take a fresh look at the case. Despite numerous hearings and inquiries into the uh, tough treatment of conservative groups by the tax agency during the 2010 and 2012 elections, the Obama Justice Department had announced in 2015 that no one at the IRS would be prosecuted. They said at the time that investigators had found no evidence that any IRS official acted based on political, discriminatory, corrupt, or other inappropriate motives that would to support a criminal prosecution, end quote. Well, the Republicans who requested a fresh look at the case were disappointed in the Trump's GOP, uh, rather DOJ response, and equally with the uh, uh, with the previous. This is a terrible decision, Brady said. It sends the message that the same legal, ethical, and constitutional standards we all live by do not apply to Washington political appointees. Lerner headed the IRS division that processes applications for tax-exempt groups and Inspector General's report in 2013, who is, by the way, an insider in the IRS, found that the IRS had uh, singled out uh, conservative and Tea Party groups for extra scrutiny when they applied for tax-exempt status. Many had their applications delayed for months and years. Some were asked uh, improper questions about their donors and even their religious practices. Much of the agency's leadership, including Lerner, resigned or retired over the scandal. Brady uh, said appointees will now have the green light to target Americans for their political views and mislead investigators without ever being held accountable for their lawlessness. Lerner and her attorney have long maintained she did nothing wrong. Well, in 2014, the Ways and Meads Committee voted to refer her to the Justice Department for possible 
possible criminal prosecution. Republicans on the committee said that she may have violated the constitutional rights of conservative groups, misled investigators and risked exposing confidential taxpayer information. But apparently the issue is no longer of concern to the Department of Justice. Well, FBI Director Christopher Rye he uh, said on Thursday that he had not detected any whiff of interference, and that's a quote by the White House, into the ongoing investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Speaking publicly for the first time since being confirmed as head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, Ray also expressed confidence in Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigating whether President Donald Trump's campaign colluded with Russia during the election. I can say very confidently that I have not detected any whiff of interference with that investigation, he said during a panel discussion at the Intelligence and National Security Summit in Washington. Ray was installed as FBI director after his predecessor, James Comey, was fired by Trump in May. In an interview with NBC after Comey's removal, Trump admitted he was thinking about this Russia thing when he decided to fire then-FBI chief Comey. Comey later told Congress he believed Trump had tried to get him to drop the probe into the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn as part of the broader Russian investigation, testimony that has raised questions about whether Trump was potentially trying to obstruct justice. The White House has repeatedly denied that Trump's campaign colluded with Russia in the election. His advisors and allies also have questioned Mueller's independence and credibility, with some pointing out that he has hired attorneys who have given Uh, substantial political donations to Democrats. But Ray said he has enormous respect for Mueller, who's also a former FBI director. And he stressed that Mueller is running the probe, but said the FBI is insisting or rather assisting by uh, dedicating agents and providing other support to the investigation, which continues rightfully in silence until some conclusions, some um, decisions are ultimately made. Well, Hillary Clinton believes uh, that, um, James Comey, Russia, WikiLeaks, Facebook, fake news, voter ID laws, sexism and misogyny are responsible for her losing. And let's not forget sexism and misogyny, which are endemic, uh, she went on to say. Well, she believes that um, were it not for James Comey, Russia, WikiLeaks, and you got the the list, uh, she would currently be president of the United States. In just under two minutes, she rattled off eight separate excuses for losing in 2016. She says that if the election were held on October 27th, which of course it never is, I would be your president, singling out James Comey in particular for reopening an investigation into her mishandling of classified material. I went for 26 points. I went from 26 points ahead to 13 points uh ahead and i needed about 18 points in order to uh, to be sure to win pennsylvania she said in of the impact of comey's notorious letter explaining he was reopening the investigation i watched how analysts who i have a great deal of respect for like nate silver um burrowed into all the data and said that but for uh, uh, for the comey letter she would have won so it was very personal to me she went on to say in an interview with cbs jane pauley i think my general election prospects were badly damaged because of that, so that even though I was starting to come back, it was not enough time to overcome it, end quote. Well, Clinton also rattled uh, off Russia, WikiLeaks, and even fake news as other culprits in her failed bid. Uh, But even though the Comey letter was the primary blow to my campaign at the very end, it has to be looked at in context with the Russians weaponizing information, negative stories about me, this whole WikiLeaks beginning to leak in early October of John Podesta's emails, which if you read them all were, they're pretty um, anodyne, but they were taken out of context. Stories were made up about them and so on. She then cited a recent story about Facebook, except 
accepting advertising from a Russian firm as another reason for her loss. We now know that Facebook was taking money from Russian companies uh, to, to run negative stories, not just about her, but about me, she continues. If you look at all of this, yes, it affected me in my campaign, but I am more concerned now going forward that we haven't come to grips with what it means for future elections, end quote. Well, in comments that echo Donald Trump's uh, claims that the votes from illegal aliens affected the vote total, Clinton likewise claims that Republican-led voter suppression enabled Trump to win toss-up states. I would also add that the voter suppression that we now know had been in the works, well, she believes, and really puts in uh, into effect in a lot of states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, etc., played a role, she said. And she blamed America's sexism and misogyny, which are epi- endemic, rather, in our society. And certainly, as I write in my chapter called On Being a Woman in Politics, have to be factored in as well. So she still is failing to take responsibility for running a f- pretty bad campaign. And many of the Democrats uh, dread when the book actually comes out because they want to look forward rather than back. But uh, Hillary Clinton is concerned, it would appear, more interested in her own legacy than in the fate of uh, in the future of the party. We'll see what happens when it's actually released. Well, Facebook's recent announcement that it uncovered approximately $100,000 in fraudulent ads spending has shed new light on the Russian company purportedly uh, behind the ads that may have helped shape the 2016 election. A little-known but influential company known as the Internet Research Agency, according to a 2015 New York Times story on the agency, it employs hundreds of Russians to post pro-Kremlin propaganda online under fake identities, reports uh, have described the firm as a, a troll farm. Collins Dictionary defines a troll farm as an organization whose employees or members attempt to create conflict and disruption in an online community by posting deliberately inflammatory or provocative comments. According to a source familiar with the social networks thinking, Facebook's research links its uh, recent findings to the Internet Research Agency. The agency's potential involvement in the fraudulent Facebook and ad spending was first reported by the New York Times and the Washington Post. On Wednesday, the chief security officer at Facebook, Alex Stamos, wrote the company found approximately $100,000 in ad spending from June of 2015 to May of 2017 associated with roughly 3,000 ads that was connected to about 470 inauthentic accounts and pages in violation of our policies. Our analysis suggests these accounts and pages were affiliated with one another and likely operated out of Russia. Hmm. We're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour in the five o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Benjamin Weicker, his book, The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Benjamin Weicker. He's the author of The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. The Reformation was the greatest religious and political convulsion of the Western history between the fall of the Roman Empire and the French Revolution. But according to my guest, Mr. Weicker, we don't really know that much about it. And we're going to talk about some things we need to know in its wake some 500 years down the line. I thought it was uh, rather interesting that on, in Christianity today, because uh, we're marking the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, many Protestants are closer to Catholics than Martin Luther. 
Uh, and uh, writing on the subject, they point out that in 1517, Martin Luther staked his soul on two revolutionary di- ideas. One, that salvation is dependent on faith alone. The other, that scripture is the only ultimate authority for Christian belief and practice, and that it does not need oversight from church leadership or tradition to be read and understood. Uh, the 95 Theses, I had the opportunity to stand in Wittenberg at the uh, door that the the 90, 95 Theses was nailed. But anyway, at that door in Wittenberg, it served as the catalyst for one of the world's largest religious splits as thousands broke off from the Roman Catholic Church. His legacy 500 years later is fifth. 560 million Protestants across the globe, making up more than a third of the world's Christians. But many of them don't actually agree with him. Again, this is Christianity Today, having done some research on where we stand today. Um, They write that today, half of American Protestants say that both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven, 52%. The same uh, number believe that in addition to the Bible, Christians need guidance from church teaching and traditions, according to two studies released today by the Pew Research Center. Now, that could be interpreted in a number of ways. While we believe that that one is... uh, enters a relationship with Christ through faith, one can also believe that it's helpful to have church teaching and tradition. So it's not clear to me, and I haven't had the opportunity to look at the two studies to see what people meant by that, that uh, that Christians need guidance from church teaching and tradition. But nonetheless, the numbers don't change in Western Europe. In Luther's home country of Germany, for example, 61% of Protestants believe good deeds are needed for salvation. They're not um, evidence of one's conversion. They're not done out of gratitude, but they are, in fact, necessary for salvation. In John Calvin, Switzerland, 57% agree, as do 47 uh, percent in Abraham Kuyper's Holland. So it's interesting to see the the drift and shift. And one of the points that Benjamin Weicker is going to make is that there have been a number of reformations in quotes, and he believes there will be yet another. Well, again, uh, looking back at the Christianity Today um, article on where people stand on these issues, uh, they write that, in fact, in every country in Western Europe, except Norway, where 51 percent of Protestants say salvation comes through faith alone, belief in sola fide, uh, is a minority view even among Protestants, Pew reported. About half of Catholics and Protestants in Europe say that the two religions are more similar than they are different, while only about a quarter say they're more different than they are similar. Now, again, without clarifying, it's not uh, altogether clear what individuals mean by that, but uh, in in general... Uh, I think we can just quote it and leave it at that. Well, in America, they go on, uh, where many followers of the Reformation fled to escape Catholic persecution, more than half of Protestants now say that Catholicism is more like Protestantism than the two are different. Now, it, it would be interesting to know how much these Protestants know about Catholicism and vice versa uh, in order to make that confident statement. They go on. However, most Americans... No, the two aren't exactly the same. When asked to define Protestantism in their own words, a plurality of adults said not Catholic or generally Christian. Uh, Again, no no nuance there. Uh, Though American Protestants were largely able to pinpoint Martin Luther as the inspiration at 71 percent and the movement's label as the Reformation, 70 percent, just three to ten uh, said they believed in both salvation by faith alone and the complete sufficiency of Scripture. If Luther has an heir, it appears to be um, one segment of the uh, the church, which I'm not going to get into because they divided up uh, racially, and I, I I hate that kind of division, uh, even for the sake of statistics. But nonetheless, we're going to talk with uh, Benjamin Weicker in just a few moments about the Reformation 
500 years ago and uh, its impact uh, as we see it today. As, uh, one of the points that he makes is it wasn't just a movement that had an impact theologically and on the church, but it represented political convulsion in the West that, that had to do with uh, other things as well. And we're going to t- take a look at that. He writes that even the guillotine in Paris and the two world wars of the 20th century can be seen as continuing aftershocks of the revolution set in motion by Martin Luther 500 years ago. And yet, while the Reformation was an enormous historical event, one whose uh, lasting influence touches every one of us, few actually understand it, which is not surprising, given that its uh, immediate outcome shocked even Martin Luther. Uh, But now the Reformation in this book, uh, 500 years later, popular historian uh, and professor Benjamin Weicker offers uh, a rather entertaining and easy to understand layman's uh, guide to the Reformation and its enduring relevance. So we'll talk about that in just a few minutes when he joins us. Meanwhile, the rise and fall of the Christian bookstore is a subject that I had the occasion to uh, read about recently. Jonathan Merritt points out that back in the 1990s, and some of us were around then, it often seemed that every city and town in America had a strip mall with a Christian bookstore where you could purchase what would Jesus do bracelets and enough devotional books to fill up the Ark of the Covenant. But today, these Christian bookstores are a dying breed. Indeed, it seems we are fast approaching an America where this popular and this particular brand of religious retailer will no longer uh, be uh, among us. It will be no more than a, a, a memory. Over the last decade, Christian bookstores across the nation have been shuttering. Uh, in some cases, consumers are just less interested in stores. Um, but plenty of others are just opting to purchase religious items from online retailers with Christian bookstores humbled before the same digital market forces that felled secular mom and pop bookstores as well. And some of the larger ones, the flailing uh, Christian bookstore industry reached code red status earlier this year when family Christian stores touted as the world's largest retailer of Christian themed merchandise declared that it would shutter all of its 240 stores all across the country, laying off 3000 employees. The 85 year old chain said that that uh, changing consumer behavior and declining sales left it no choice. Well, given the state of the industry and larger retailing trends, Family Christian Stores closure is seen by many as a harbinger of things to come. If trends persist, Christian bookstores may well be destined for the history books. Now, in uh, in this area, there are very few that remain. Christian uh, bookstores are, for the most part, um, gone with a few a very few exceptions. I don't know about you, but I loved going into the store, having an opportunity to peruse the covers of books and to, to pick them up and hold them in my hand. And um, uh, Bibles in particular, when you're buying a new Bible, to be able to hold it and see the print and see the cover and, and all of those things. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed bookstores in general, but a Christian bookstore in particular. Uh, but they are a thing, it would appear, a thing of the past. Um, one of the things that the article points out is that in the 90s, with the advent of the digital age, it began to transform the way Americans shopped and consumed media. The rise of online retailers uh, created stiff competition for brick and mortar stores, and that's true across the board. Uh, absent of rent, real estate, large staffs allowed the emerging retailers, distributors, if you will, to offer deep discounts. And it changed in some ways the way bookstores 
um, handled their their merchandise if they continued at all. They point out that in 1970, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth that rocked the marketplace with claims that the biblical end of the world was fast approaching. Bantam picked up the title in 73, made it the first Christian prophecy book released by a secular publisher. It went on to sell more than 30 million copies. The Living Bible was a best-selling nonfiction in 72 and 73. Billy Graham's Angels was the best-selling nonfiction in 75. And that trend continued to build. Um, the Associated Press in 1983, titled Christian Book Sales Are Booming, uh, relayed that Christian booksellers uh, had grown by 20 to 25 percent over the past decade. But again, that is a, th- a trend that is no longer um, no longer the case. Uh, kind of an interesting thing to think back of how important um, the Christian bookstores were to many of us back in the day when we were looking for material on it, given any given subject, whether that was just for entertainment purposes or we were trying to study deeper in our uh, our devotional life on any particular subject. Anyway, coming up next, we're going to talk with Benjamin Weicker, author of The Reformation 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back, apparently having some difficulty reaching Benjamin Weicker. Uh, the book is The Reformation 500 Years Later. We'll continue to work on that, um, but we'll just see what happens. Well, the Trump administration is backing a Colorado baker who refused to create a cake for the wedding of a same-sex couple. The case, one of the most important to be heard this term, pits advocates for religious liberty against supporters of LGBT rights. In a friend of the court brief that was filed with the Supreme Court, the Justice Department urged the court to side with Masterpiece Cake Shop. The owner, Jack Phillips, who says making a cake for a... a, a Wedding violates his religious liberty, forcing Phillips, the DOJ writes, to create expression for and participate in a ceremony that violates his sincerely held religious beliefs, invades his First Amendment rights. Acting Solicitor General Jeff Wall wrote for the Justice Department, the government may not enact content-based laws commanding a speaker to engage in protected expression. An artist cannot be forced to paint, a musician cannot be forced to play, and a poet cannot be forced to write, the brief goes on to, to say. Well, the case dates back to 2012, when David Mullins and Charlie Craig asked Phillips to create a cake to celebrate their wedding. Phillips declined, citing religious objections, lower courts citing A state anti-discrimination law ruled in favor of the couple. Well, the filing by the government is significant in part as it indicates the difference between the two administrations. The Obama administration would not have filed such a brief. The United States is not an official party of the case, and it was Wall's choice to file. Well, it's not unusual for the federal government to file an amicus brief in such an important constitutional case. Um, uh, Steve Vladek, a CNN um, Supreme Court analyst and professor at the University of Texas School of Law. What makes this brief unusual is its substance. It's particularly unheard of for the Justice Department to argue in favor of a constitutional exemption to anti-discrimination laws, a constitutional right to discriminate. But that's exactly what the brief is doing. Now, they're defining the Second Amendment uh, very broadly, whereas opponents would define it narrowly. That would suggest one should be compelled uh, if if called upon to engage in a certain expression um, under certain circumstances, in this case, for an, a member of the LGBT community. Well, Justice Department spokesman Lauren Ersham 
said the filing emphasizes that the First Amendment protects the right of free expression for all Americans. And although public accommodations laws serve important purposes, they, like other laws, must yield to the individual freedoms of the First Amendment guarantees. That includes the freedom not to create expression for ceremonies that violate one's religious belief, end quote. Well, the ACLU is representing the couple. They responded with a statement blasting the administration. And the Supreme Court is uh, going to, to hear this case at some point in the not-too-distant future, which could have an impact on lots of other uh, very similar cases. In fact, there's an effort to try to uh, include those cases in this decision. Meanwhile, CNN has a documentary on um, on uh, President Reagan and his legacy, but apparently they've got it wrong. Is it possible to devote 90 minutes of primetime TV to Ronald Reagan as an actor who changed the presidency through his use of mass media and still miss why he uh, was a great communicator? Well, CNN apparently did all too predictably in their uh, in their um, documentary. Well, we'll return to that uh, another occasion. Apparently, we have our guests, so we're going to move to that uh, that conversation again. Uh, we're talking about uh, secularism, radical Islam, nationalism. They all sound like buzzwords pulled out of today's headlines. But my next guest points out that you might be surprised to know that 500 years ago, they were at the epicenter of one of the greatest religious and political convulsions in Western history. And he's referring to the Reformation. In the book, The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know, historian and professor Benjamin Weicker uh, brings to light the enduring relevance of one of the most significant events in history and the surprising things you probably never learned in history class. And while the Reformation was an enormous historical event, few readers uh, really understand it. And it's not surprising. Its immediate outcome shocked even Martin Luther. Well, for Catholics, it was unjustified rebellion. For Protestants, it was the release of biblical Christianity from centuries-old enslavement and corruption, idolatry, and error. So what's the truth? Uh, the book is clear, concise, it's balanced and fair-minded, and uh, Dr. Professor Weicker, uh, his Reformation 500 years later, will inform and enlighten Protestants, Catholics, and secular readers alike who want to understand the Reformation from our vantage point 500 years later. Well, Dr. Weicker is a senior fellow at the Veritas Center for Ethics and Policy and Director of Human Life Studies at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Uh, Dr. Weicker has appeared on many national radio shows. His writing has appeared in dozens of publications. He's a graduate of Furman and Vanderbilt. He has taught history, philosophy, political science, theology, and history and philosophy of science, and mathematics, among other subjects, at Marquette University, St. Mary's University, and Thomas Aquinas College, is now a professor of political science at Franciscan University. He's the author of 12 books, including his popular guide, 10 Books That Screwed Up the World, The Darwin Myth, and Answering the New Atheism. Dr. Weicker, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. Why is it important for us to understand the the Reformation in context and its impact on the 21st century? Well, I, I was listening in on your show a little earlier, so I know that, that you were discussing uh, the fact that now, oddly enough, or happily enough, that uh, Christians are not as divided as they were uh, over the last centuries, uh, beginning with the Reformation. So Christians are coming together, and as I point out in the book, that's a good thing, because Protestants and Catholics alike are being attacked by radical secularism and radical Islam. And so now's the time for us to band together, and one of the things that's going to help us is to learn about what happened 500 years ago, learn about what both sides did wrong, uh, but also learn that secularism and Islam were alive and kicking back then, and both 
wanted to destroy Christianity back then as they do today. Now, in your first chapter, you um, suggest that the Reformation is coming to an end, but Christianity uh, most probably is not. What do you mean by that? And and you suggest that there has been more than one Reformation. Uh, what, what do you mean it's coming to an end, and what might that look like? Well, hopefully, um, well, in some ways, it's, it's not a good situation. As I mentioned, uh, we've got the persecution of Christians by radical Islam, and people may not be aware that over 100,000 Christians are being martyred per year now by radical Islam. And uh, radical secularism over the last century uh, helped to martyr more Christians than all previous centuries combined. So uh, one of the things that's happening is, again, Protestants and Catholics are being driven together and when that happens, and I think that the Pew Research is reflecting that, we find out that our differences are not really as, uh, as significant as we once thought. We can have a little humility about the kinds of uh, disagreements that we've had. And even though those disagreements are real, we can come together in a kind of friendship and common cause. Because, again, we are in a society, a secular society, both in America and in Europe, that that is hostile to Christianity, uh, as is radical Islam. So that's one of the things that's bringing the Reformation to an end, and hopefully bringing about another kind of Reformation, one where the Christian unity is the new goal, and it's, we're going to need that, or Christians won't be able to survive. Are you um, referring to a, a theological Reformation, or one in which uh, believers and followers of Jesus recognize that we have to unite in order to uh, stand against the tide of secularism and radical Islam? I, I think there's been some uh, theological coming together. I quote in the first chapter a, a uh, something that Martin Luther thought, I'm sure, could never happen. It was a joint declaration by Catholics and Lutherans on a common understanding of justification by faith. That's really helpful. Uh, um, I think that Protestants probably have a great deal of respect for the kinds of popes that they have seen in the 20th century, and I know Catholics have a great deal of respect for the kind of zeal that evangelicals have in the, in the political realm. So there's a kind of common respect there, and yes, we, you know, we, we, there are still differences, but I think that those are paling in comparison to what we hold in common, and that is, again, that's going to be the source of our being able to survive and the source, I hope, of a new Reformation. Now, let's, let's talk about um, the context in which the, the Reformation took place. And I think I, we may be short on time in this segment before I, yeah, before I go into that. So I'll, I'll ask you in the, uh, in the next segment, but I do need to take sure. a quick break. We will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a, an interesting, a fascinating book, The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Benjamin Weicker. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with uh, Benjamin Weicker. He's the author of The Reformation, 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. The book is published by Regnery History. Let's talk a little bit about the context in which uh, the uh, Reformation took place. And you make the point that, uh, much like today, um, Islam and secularism were major factors uh, influencing the Reformation. Yes. Uh, and and uh, people aren't aware of this. We're woefully ignorant of this uh, aspect of history. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, that is 1500, um, the big thing on everyone's plate was actually uh, n- not just the Reformation, 
uh, not just what was going on in Germany, but the fact that Islam was poised to take over Europe and, in fact, had made inroads by going through modern-day Turkey. It had captured Constantinople uh, about 50 years before Luther and had made inroads in southern uh, Europe and in eastern Europe. And that had a very uh, chilling effect on all of Europe. The, the thing that people feared more than anything at that point was that Islam was going to break through, and that would be the end of Christianity, period. And uh, Luther, I'm sure, would be extremely uh, shocked to find out there was a 500 years after the Reformation that we would still be here today, because he thought he was in the last times. Uh, that's how frightened they were, and, and he interpreted his own time that way. Uh, he thought that, you know, the events were playing out the apocalypse, and Islam was the rod of God's anger. And so that the, uh, the context of Reformation was, we think this is it. There is not going to be any future. We're in the last times. Uh, on the Catholic side of things, uh, and also on the political side, a lot of people were mad at Luther and were telling him, look, what are you doing making all this fuss? We're about to be destroyed by Muslims. We need to band together. Uh, so an interesting aspect is uh, that the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor was unable to attend to what was going on in Germany with Luther because he was busy literally keeping Muslims from uh, completely swamping Europe. So that's the context. And 500 years later today, we need to understand a continuity with that history because Islam is seeing itself as uh, it, it was not able to take over Europe 500 years ago but now it believes that it is going to be able because Europe is largely secularized, that is, de-Christianized, and a whole lot weaker. So that's one aspect of it, Islam, and we can pick up some other aspects, too, uh, with secularization. But you might want to ask a question about that, about the Islam. Yeah, yeah. Um, Martin Luther had not intended for a split in the church. He wanted a reformation and the church to remain intact. And you make the point that Luther inspired radical reformers, that he actually himself despised. It wasn't a, yeah. a, mo- a movement that Luther fixed and it continued in the way that he envisioned it. There were transformations, uh, better word than reformation, I suppose, that followed that he would not have approved. And, and he did, yes. Um, it wasn't very long after uh, he himself made his own position clear that uh, other reformers who likewise didn't like the Catholic Church took Luther's principle of sola scriptura, that is by scripture alone, and came up with their own versions, as it were, of Protestantism. And they, in fact, they actually went to uh, uh, Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Luther was not there at the time, but he had to come back because they were saying all kinds of things that Luther didn't agree with. And so fairly soon, really within you know a couple years of his start, uh, you had other reformers uh, uh, arising, and Luther thought they were of Satan in the same way that the uh, the Catholic Church, he thought, was, you know, a satanic organization or, or ruled by the Antichrist. So he was, he was now felt like he was surrounded by, uh, as it were, uh, perverters of Christianity on both sides. Now, of course, the, the other reformers didn't think they were perverting Christianity. I mean, these are the forerunners of, of uh, our um, uh, Presbyterians today, uh, of the Evangelical Church, of Baptists, and so on, of the Anabaptist movement. So right away, Luther got into trouble, uh, and he never really got out of trouble, and I don't think understood why, why what he began didn't remain where he thought it should. 
Well, one reason for that might be, and you write about it, the invention of the printing press um, oh, yes. uh, made it possible not only for his writing to be made widely uh, available, but others as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the printing press was had almost the exact same effect as the Internet does today. A lot of information goes out on it and a lot of misinformation, and people tend to overstate their cases and get mad and say things they shouldn't to become rigid and nasty. And they go, oh, that just happened with, you know, Facebook and Twitter. Well, actually, it happened with the printing press almost right away. Uh, and so he was, his uh, works were published uh, all through Germany and then Europe, but also his Protestant detractors were, too. And eventually, really, it was the followers of John Calvin uh, who, who actually, through publication, became more historically important in Europe, uh, that's our modern-day Presbyterians or Reformers or the Reformed Church. So, you know, for Luther, it was a mixed bag. And, of course, Catholics are printing their own things. And if that weren't weird enough, um, uh, one of the things that came out of the printing press really fast was not just Bibles, but pornography. So you had the printing of pornography starting up then. So, again, not that much different from today's Internet, and it made things... Uh, spin apart a lot faster than they probably should have and made the Reformation that much more divisive because of it. Let's talk about the rise of atheism and paganism. Now, some would suggest that the Reformation gave rise to atheism, but it really did predate the Reformation. But let's talk about how it played a part in the Reformation. Yes, that's an important point. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up, because, you know, the, the basic story you get in your history book and say, oh, Christians were fighting each other and all the rational people looked at what Christians were doing after the Reformation and said, that's it, you know, we don't believe in God. But what actually happened was that atheism spread uh, prior to the Reformation. I document this in the book, uh, mainly beginning in Italy, because that's where they were recovering these ancient pagan Greek and Roman atheist texts, and they were spreading all, all around uh, at the time, again, with the printing press. And uh, so what you find at that time is the, the origin of modern radical secularism that attacks Christianity, tries to remove it from society, uh, argues that Christianity is a horrible mistake. Uh, that's not something that just happened in the late 20th century and early 21st century. The roots of that arose in 1400 in Italy. And one of the things that happened is these new radical secularists used the divisions between Christians as a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy so as to remove Christianity from the public realm uh, so that you would then have just secularism arise as the controlling element in society. And it was very successful by the 18 and 1900s. It had pretty much, uh, secularism had pretty much ousted Christianity from centrality, and that's where we are today. You write about the fact that um, Martin Luther was a flawed man, that the popes were worse than we probably thought they were. I suppose that shouldn't be surprising, given the fact that we all come from that same line of of sinfulness. But why is it important, do you think, for us to to recognize the flaws in uh, in both camps, the the popes that um, that Luther railed against and Luther himself? Yes, that, that's an excellent point, because one of the things, again, we mentioned earlier was that Christianity, uh, in order to survive, all Christians, Protestant and Catholic, are going to have to come together. And what I try to do in the Reformation 500 years later is, is offer a big, big, humble pie to everyone, saying, look, 
Luther was not some kind of a saint. He had, you know, it's Luther, warts, and all, so I have an entire chapter on that. But also, look, Catholics, you know, John Paul II was a wonderful pope, but they're not all like that. And at the time of the Reformation leading up to Luther, you've got some of the worst popes that we can imagine, somebody like Alexander VI or Leo X, you know, people with illegitimate children who were basically using the papacy, uh, you know, for their own adv- political advancement. If somebody was sitting in the, pa- uh, you know, the papal throne today like that, no Catholic would think that was a good thing. We'd be horrified. So on both sides of it, you know, we can, uh, both Catholics and Protestants can say, yeah, yeah, I, I see where the problems were, uh, you know, and maybe, maybe apologize and say, Look, uh, you know, this didn't need to come uh, turn out this way. Uh, we each have things to be humble about, and that's a good position from which we can go forward from where we are now with the new Reformation. I wish we had more time, but I want to, in our final moments, uh, give you an opportunity to uh, describe what a, a new Reformation might look like. Uh, again, as you mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean that the theologies of the Protestants and the Catholics would necessarily suddenly meld together, but that there would be a type of unity uh, born of necessity, given the challenges we face. Yes, and uh, you know, I, I I dedicate the book to my good evangelical friend Larry Taunton and Fixed Point. Um, and you know, we're together on so many things. We work together, uh, you know, against the culture of death uh, to get a clear understanding of what's going on with Islam and so on and so on. And the point of that is, we can get together and we realize, okay, we have differences, but we can have a deep friendship based on what we have in common. Now, every Christian as a Christian has got to affirm the Nicene Creed. You know, if you don't affirm the Nicene Creed, there's not anything left of Mm -hmm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good place to begin. And yes, we do have differences, but, you know, when you work side by side against abortion or against, you know, the whole problems with gay marriage and against radical Islam, against the attacks on on all churches, um, you know, you start to form the kind of friendships where those deep animosities fade in comparison to the common goals that you share. Well, the book, uh, once again, is titled The Reformation 500 Years Later, 12 Things You Need to Know. It's a great read, and I would encourage people who want to have a better understanding, not only of the Reformation that occurred 500 years ago, but its impact right up to the present and uh, and beyond. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, the book, by the way, is published by Regnery History. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a lot that's uh, gone on today and in the days previous with the hurricanes in Florida, in Houston, and all of our attention focused rightfully on our citizens who are suffering at this very minute. Here close to home, of course, we have the Eagle Creek fire that is only 7% contained. And uh, there's a great deal of concern about what will be left when it's all said and done. Now, we have heard from officials with the uh, fire department that the uh, the Columbia Gorge still looks like the Columbia Gorge, but it certainly will have some dramatic changes as a consequence of this fire that continues to rage, but has been relatively well contained uh, in terms of its, uh, its expansion. But today, of course, marks uh, our recollection of the events of 9-11-2001. 
uh, they were des- uh, devastating. And we mark the 16th anniversary of that date. It hardly seems like it's been that long ago. But it was an attack on our nation. 2,977 innocents, most uh, mostly American citizens, were murdered on that date. Uh, The presidential proclamation under a previous administration uh, says that each year on this date is Patriot Day, that all flags should be flown at half-staff in memory of those who lost their lives, and we make claims that we will never forget uh, the things that they endured. And so we wanted to close the program today, as we did earlier in the program, by reflecting on those events, remembering those whose lives were lost, and those who, in response to the events of September 11, 2001, have defended the interests of our nation abroad. Gargantuan explosion. Oh my God, I don't believe it. The northeast corner has exploded in the most incredible explosion. Flames are flying out of the building. They're five, ten stories high now. Black billowing smoke. The building corner, the whole entire corner is gone. Both World Trade Center buildings in New York City right now, heaps of rubble. At 9 o'clock this morning, a plane crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. I heard the noise. I was in my office and I heard the guys screaming. So I ran out and and everybody was saying, oh my God, and they're in tears, they're crying. Everybody's upset. I was trying to make phone calls. I looked up and I heard an explosion. And then I saw everybody in the street react first. People crying, people on the ground, everybody lying down. And then I looked up and I saw the, and I saw this huge plume of smoke and the tower just crumbling and it, and it just turned into a huge plume of smoke. And next thing you know, there's smoke in one tower. Shortly after nine o'clock, a second plane crashed into the second tower. Oh my God! I heard a noise coming in incredibly low, and then um, I heard I was standing here looking out the window and I knew it was going to crash and something was going to hit the building. I dove away from the window because I thought the explosion was going to implode the windows and I'd be shattered with, with glass flying out. As soon as it hit, I came back and there was a ball of flame. I'm, I'm still shaking. I saw it hit the tower and flame everywhere. Then minutes later, President Bush in Sarasota, Florida, called those crashes an apparent terrorist attack and a national tragedy. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Then an aircraft crashes near the Pentagon just outside of Washington, D.C. in northern Virginia about an hour after those attacks in New York. Looking out our 12th floor windows at 1600 Wilson Boulevard in uh, Roslyn, Virginia, and I watched this. It looked like a commuter plane, two engine, come down from the south real low. Uh, proceed right on and crash right into the uh, Pentagon. Then shortly after 10 o'clock this morning, one World Trade Center tower in New York collapsed. Now, lots of smoke, and then the next thing I heard an explosion and the building on the top, the south building, just crumbled. Just after 10.30 this morning, the other World Trade Center tower collapsed. We were standing there looking up at flames coming out of the building and smoke billowing out of the building and, and police and FBI everywhere, and suddenly we heard a rumble and the sky was full of smoke. Everybody read crowds of people running through, I mean, shouting out to each other not to fall into the subway entrances. So it's just truly amazing because yesterday afternoon we were sitting in the World Trade Plaza Center having lunch, and so now those two buildings are completely destroyed. It was such a, a staggering thing to sit and watch on television, the events that were unfolding, and of course when we first 
saw the first uh, plane hit. We had no idea what was coming. We assumed it was an accident when the second plane hit. When we heard about the Pentagon, when we heard about uh, U.S. Flight 97, it was a day of of, uh, great sorrow and uncertainty. No one knew what was coming next. I remember the president speaking to the nation, uh, trying to offer some solace and put into perspective what had happened. Uh, Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families and and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. You might recall Congress stood in solidarity on the steps of the Capitol and sang rather poorly, God bless America. It was a sight we haven't seen and hadn't seen for some time before nor since. Uh, You might remember Arab nations. There were uh, images of them celebrating what had happened, and first responders were the heroes of the day and continue to be the heroes of the day as they rushed toward the danger in an attempt to rescue as many as possible from uh, what um, would be one of the greatest tragedies of our nation. And, of course, many of them lost their lives in their efforts to save others. It is a day that we need to remember quite well, and we do so here now. Uh, Taking a look at the program uh, coming up this week, tomorrow, we have a special project that we're working at here at the station, so you'll have an opportunity to hear um, the best of the uh, the Georgine Rice Show. We'll share with you some of our better interviews. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Kevin Lehman. Uh, Dr. Lehman is the author most recently of Education a la Carte, Choosing the Best Schooling Option for Your Child. And we're working on some other uh, interviews for the remainder of the week as well. So um, keep it uh, tuned here to hear more about what we'll be featuring. Anyway, it's been quite a Quite a weekend, quite a few uh, few days with the events uh, taking place in Florida and in Houston and right here in our own backyard as the Eagle Creek fire continues to uh, to rage. I know that's kept many of us on our knees. I would encourage you to continue uh, to do just that. Pray for our neighbors and help where we can. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.